0: Obviously, it's disgusting to just throw out half your food. But you then think about how far, if that food has travelled from Queensland and has passed into so many, five different, six different hands on the way there, that has probably done more travelling than I have in the past six months. Precisely. Our food's gone infinitely further than any of us in the last year, basically. (laughs) And that represents a large amount of use of fossil fuels for travel. It's obviously immoral when around, you know, seven 800 million people globally are suffering from hunger it just Mm. seems wrong if it's an animal product it represents a waste of life as well and to add to a waste of resources it also you know producing plant product or animal products require a great deal more than it does to produce plant products
1: I'm joined today with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well. Thank you, Tim. It's good to have you here. It's a, a lovely day where, on the backside of a minor lockdown. Yeah, and that three
2: day lockdown wasn't a lot of fun. That whole not being allowed out to do anything. Yeah. Really, the March April lockdown, whenever that was now, was a relatively simple thing because you could still go out and get a coffee or go for a walk. Mm. Taking those two things away, even me, where I
1: don't see outside and yeah. I still missed it. No vitamin D. Oh no, that you <laughs> spray your tongue. Screw the sun. The sun's just evil. <laughs> We're also joined with a very special guest, Roman Davis Faye of Climate Proof Food. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's really important that we get to talk to you because of course the project that you're involved in is pretty much, I guess, one half of the sustenance of life, really, wouldn't you say? Like if we include water, maybe air. <laughs> yeah, oh, at definitely. least one third. It yeah. requires the other two thirds for that one third to work. Yes. <laughs> no, that's yeah,
0: exactly it. What I've been trying to do with Climate Proof Food is really raise awareness and reconnect people with food and just bring it back to our attention, how vital it is to life itself and you know, it really connects so many different parts of our lives, whether it's our health or, or the health of everything of our like, personal bodies or the environment or of our economy as well. It really touches on every aspect of human existence. And I think over the next couple of decades, we're really going to have to give it the respect it deserves in how it's going to be used as a tool to address so many of the different problems that we're currently facing today.
2: It was interesting the other day, Roman. I was talking to a friend of mine, and she was really excited for her birthday that her family were going to go to the Uraidla Hotel. And one of the reasons she was really excited is because the Uraidla Hotel has a massive kitchen garden that you can see from the dining room. Literally, you know, it's probably bigger than the pub, I would guess. And nearly everything they serve in their dining room comes from the valley immediately around the pub. So it's a wonderful example of, okay, it's still done in the modern way. It's recognisable as growing things the way we know, growing the plants we know, doing all those other things. But at least you've killed food miles Mm -hmm. and you've made it visible. Look, this can be done local and see what's on the menus in season. It's out there in the garden. Or if you drive around this valley, you'll see it growing in a farmer's field. Is that a beginning of a kind of step
0: that you would approve of and
2: appreciate?
0: There's one thing to take as far as addressing these issues that we sort of, when we look at food systems, which are almost all of the components and people and practices involved in getting our food from farm to plate. And I think the local model is something that we really need to give a lot of recognition. And when looking at these issues, there's generally no silver bullet. It's going to be a big combination of using all of the the tools in our toolbox to address different problems, so to speak. And I think that... Sourcing our food locally is exactly what you said. It's reducing our food miles, but there's so many different aspects that you might not think about directly. Like having a closer relationship with the farmers in your region means that it's highly likely that you've spoken to people and you've realized what kind of practices they're performing on their farm. And you've said, you know what? We'd really like to source from X, Y, and Z, our neighbors, because we really like the way that they take care of the environment surrounding their agricultural land and that's going to have greater benefits and improve the longevity and sustainability of that particular location for food production and then allow the next generation to continue sourcing food from that plot for example it also means that it shortens that supply chain as well so by directly reaching out to the producer you've got less steps and those steps in our long supply chains which we do there is still definitely a place in the food system for these longer supply chains but the longer it is there's generally more spots and opportunities for food waste which is another ginormous issue so by directly connecting with our food producers we can hopefully reduce that food loss um, that occurs in between. The food producer to the consumer as well.
1: And you would imagine that with all the information technology that we have available now, that directly connecting with the producer is actually quite a lot easier. Mm-hmm. It logistically, maybe wasn't as easy 30 years ago, for instance, when you couldn't just order off an iPad or whatever it was, you know? So. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And there's so many databases now or companies or organizing that B2C, you know, business to customer, yeah. whether it's from supermarkets or directly from small scale farmers we saw village greens out in Aldinga they i heard that they pretty much reached their capacity at what they can do from sort of farm farm to door because they were delivering their fruit and vegetable boxes and this was you know over the height of the, our pandemic here in South Australia and they just got greater demand for it because we did see that our supermarkets we and you know even our local fruit and veg grocers ran out but that wasn't a result of lack of production that was just Inability to get
2: stuff to the mm, point of sale. Exactly. Yeah, As you were speaking then, I was thinking of sort of Beach Organics, who have a a store at Plant 4, you know, where Barry and his family sort of have the cafe there, have a farm down south, I think, towards Victor or something. So everything he grows on the farm goes into the little cafe, but also he deals in spices and stuff Mm -hmm. and has direct relationships with people all over the world where they're grown. So he buys direct from the people who grew it for his little store in Adelaide to distribute within Australia. So you've got an interesting combination of someone going both local and distant, but cutting out as many of the middle steps that waste resources, time, Mm time, as possible. So that's that sort of compromise you're talking about where there is, sometimes things have to come from a long way. You can't grow pepper here. It's not going to work. But can you take as many of the middle steps out and get a fresh product here where the person selling it to you can still tell you about where it was grown, who grew it, and that they got a fair wage and it was done in a sustainable way?
0: No, I completely agree. And part of it is that we can't just, as much as I'm sure everyone in this room would like to grab a plot, and grow in food and isolate and build a commune. Um, is Actually, no its to several steps in that, because I'm like, <laughs>
2: as a blind person, how am I going to make sure I don't just pull the plants instead of the weeds? Like, dude, I'll be the dude <laughs> in the commune
0: who teaches the kids anarchism. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, as, as that idea is beautiful in a sense but we've we've we're so far into this way that we've created and how we source everything you know we we're, we're globally we're so interconnected that it would be quite hard to reverse that in yeah. every degree and you know all of us love our coffee for example and don't know don't believe that we're growing any coffee in in Australia at the moment and I don't think that will be something that has know, anyone even tried i reckon someone tried to grow some
2: in northern New yeah. South Wales or Southern Queensland.
0: I would. It's potentially in you know, like in the Snowies or down Tasmania. Where? it... Uh, oh, okay. really? I'm not. Sure. I, I don't think. So. I'm not too sure. I'm yeah, because
2: really, let's be blunt. If the if the coffee don't arrive,
0: that initial month while we all go through detox is going to be terrible. <laughs> yeah, a whole country on yeah. detox at once. That would be <laughs> that would be Anna. <laughs> but we still, you know, it's products like that that we value, and we c- can still obtain from overseas but then we need to highlight the importance of facilitating say fair trade and ensuring that the people on the other end are promised a livelihood that can support themselves and their families and that you know by working towards growing these sort of luxury export orientated crops that don't really have a role in their local markets as much that they are ensured a fair price and that's also asking a lot of the private you know, sector f- for transparency so that we know what's going on, on along those supply chains that the money the high cost that we're paying on the consumer end isn't just going towards value adding and it's actually going towards the producer itself mm. the other side of that it would seem to me that's important too is if someone's going
2: to grow the coffee and that's going to be their big crop so whether it's say ethiopia or Colombia. And through fair trade, you're going to go, right, you're going to get a fair price and it's going to be done in a sustainable way. Somehow you also need to be able to get an agreement that says, and you're going to be able to buy the food you're not growing Mm. at a fair price from a similar sustainable Mm. kind of clean option. So if they're growing the coffee that we buy, well, maybe our wheat is going to go to them at a price they can afford and always reliably turn up. So if you're going to ask people to go down the monoculture path – You've got to make a deal with someone that says, we're taking this risk and it benefits all of us. So how are you going to contribute to us being okay? Yeah, because the classic example of this is when the East India Company in India, I think, got the Indians growing some cash crop that was valuable to them and growing no food. So when a famine hit, it killed millions of Indians. The East India Company didn't care. Mm. But because they were being encouraged to go the cash crop, well, there was no food to buy. So if there's places where you can sustainably and, you know, sort of fair trade a cash crop, great. But how do you then secure food to those people to make up for the fact they're providing something for the rest of us? And this is this whole thing. It has to be networked. And it's going to take sort of a private public partnership of some sort to let the private make money, but make sure that there's a degree of oversight So that it actually does go, okay, it's not entirely fair, but it's fair enough that it's worth taking the risks.
0: No, I completely agree in that sense. If you have a region that has become entirely dependent on their living through the production of cash crops and they no longer have local sources of food production – It means that they slowly become entirely dependent on imports Mm. and what that does is then further exacerbate that situation so if they're receiving you know imports from us at an extremely low price that also makes it even harder for local producers to compete with Mm. particularly subsidized imports from overseas so then that really just keeps propagating that cycle and then means that they are entirely dependent and have no Sovereignty on their food production. And then, you know, if we have a particular event globally that, you know, we have a drought in Australia and we're, and then food prices go up, that means that that will significantly impact their food security because prices will then shoot up and they have no other option as well. We need to somehow
2: protect them by saying, look, you're always providing this thing to us. So we will buffer the cost of this to you. So at some level, there does need to be some level of state interconnectedness here and oversight. The example I was sort of thinking of, as you were talking, there is something like you know where we have one version of banana worldwide is the banana we all eat commercially, and it's quite a vulnerable crop, and you know they're looking to make bananas that are less vulnerable. But you know if that single plant becomes more vulnerable, and suddenly bananas are missing from people's diets worldwide, where's the substitute? Mm-hmm. You know, it's such an easy thing to grow if it's growing well. But it's becoming more and more vulnerable. I think genetically, like literally, all the bananas we eat commercially in the world are the same plant. It's, it's seriously scary stuff. The, you know, there's no biodiversity in the mainstream bananas we all eat. What? It's, yeah. it's one banana or something. It's uh, a Cavendish.
0: Yeah. I don't know the numbers, but no, you're right. And it's I think scary it's levels anyway, isn't it? Something like ninety, surely ninety percent. I haven't read my banana facts too recently. Okay, but <laughs> so guys, no, sorry if we got our banana facts <laughs> wrong because we strung, <laughs> we sprung banana questions on Roman without banana warning. <laughs> yeah. David Bananas. slipped the banana skin down, and David fell mm. on it. <laughs> no, that is a good example of just throughout our. Just globally, the lack of genetic diversity in what we eat. You know, I can't, I can't remember the numbers, but I believe it's something to 70% of the, 70 or 80% of the plant crops we eat are maize, wheat, and soy. Or, yeah, it's ridiculous. You know? They're these grains that if we
2: look at the last 10,000 years and the deterioration in human dentition, skeletons, and lifespan until very recently, it's those crops that we knew we could grow and store them in silos. It's, it's absolutely incredible that something is reliable, it has not been great to people, has not been great to the environment.
1: Yeah, what a mess. So less grains is the, the way forward, is that right? Well,
2: yeah. it, okay, it, a little while ago we talked to a wonderful economist from Tunisia, Fadel Kaboub, and Fadel was talking about a great example of sorting food security in North Africa that you know he's been working on with people, and it was having little fish farms on a farm, where all the water that the fish live in then gets used on the crop and then gets filtered back through because you grow all your plants, like in gravel, so the water fills through, the plants take all the nutrients and the water's so clean it can go back into the fish again. Mm -hmm. So you get hardly any evaporation and you're both getting protein from the fish and incredible hydroponic crops. So, you know, you're using a lot less land, more effectively, less water, not damaging soil because you're growing in the medium of just a little rocks. Are we on the verge of a revolution where these kind of artificial small systems might be the thing that we roll out all around the world to give more people more food security that is less of a danger to them and the local environment? Or is it too big an ask to sort of go down that path on a big scale?
0: That's a pretty epic question. Yeah, sorry um, about that. That's
2: just how my brain
0: works. So it's something <laughs> like two billion of the world's population are employed in farming, particularly in a lot of the developing world. And it's actually only in the West. That we've transcended
2: you know. that. So we've forgotten that
0: farming was the thing for nearly everyone. Mm. And yeah. a lot of, like in the States, in Australia and... Canada, a lot of other parts of the world where we've progressed, we've transitioned towards this broad acre, large scale farming. And it's more of become about this sort of commodity production opposed to, you know, subsistence farming where you're producing for both to sell and then you're providing for your family as well. Just before on what we said before that we've lost genetic diversity. So this sort of touches on is what you were saying about so diversity is the spice of life and especially in say an ecosystem perspective where the more variety of animals, insects, flowers, plants, trees you have, they all provide a role in managing that and keeping, you know, ecosystem Systems in balance. And yeah. as we reduce the, you know, the biodiversity, we lose so many different roles that they play that I think we're only coming to like become aware of you know th- the role that they play in both agriculture but then just ke- keeping a healthy planet like you were saying mm. lots of you know green spaces play a role in water filtration and you know removing a lot of contaminants out of our water and i think we might see a greater push towards it's called agroecology which encompasses biodynamics or regenerative practices or organics which focus on involving like forestry more and fisheries and diversified farming systems that aren't just we need to move away from monoculturing our products, so we just Mm -hmm. have one farm plot with one species on it so yeah we have this monoculture system which is incredibly vulnerable to so much whether it be pests or heat or you know if something goes wrong that is specific to this plant it means you could potentially lose the whole crop but if you ever diversified farming system it means if one thing goes wrong you know 50% of what you're trying to produce might still be there and there's a lot of co benefits to having a, you know part of a forestry system that provides shading or wind shelter and or and also harboring animals you could be gathering things out of the forest like okay. you might get natural
2: mushrooms you might get other plants growing in there that are useful so you know the interesting thing when people in their little backyard plots start going if you plant things together the bugs find them and go mental If you randomly plant your plants together, you know one here, one there, higgledy-piggledy, bugs have a harder time. So just the simple thing of mixing up where the plants are in relation to each other in your garden at home will up the success of your veggie patch, which is an amazing concept. And as you're talking about monoculture, I was sort of struck by the fact that my mum and dad are still living on the family farm and have the share farmer. And every time he gets a new piece of equipment, it's another half million dollars. And you think the only way you could pay back the money on that to the bank is to do monoculture and to be moving at high speed, non-stop, and extracting every last bit of what can be done. Because you're in debt to the system for the piece of machinery. And if the piece of the machinery determines whether you're economically viable, the system itself is always secondary to are you in debt. So yeah, debt is this wonderful trap in agriculture. As much as subsistence agriculture is hard work and doesn't deliver surpluses that allow people to be safe as we've been doing it for a long time, yeah, that's precarious in one way and monoculture is just precarious in a different way. So the trick is somehow we've got to come up with a form of agriculture that is not precarious and that would be really a new thing with the kind of population numbers we're dealing with.
0: Mm, and say so there's more diversified systems they tend to have a greater output per acre mm. say so much they might not have per crop like the wheat in a mixed system might not have the same yield as you know on a large scale but if you look at it per the space there tend to be a mix and you know, they actually perform quite mm, significantly deeply. in yeah, in comparison and as well, just whether it's forestry or having a mixed system and going back to how we've lost so much genetic diversity, it also, we can't apply this one model of farming to everywhere. And, you know, maybe to combat, we have this sort of impending climate battle that, you know, it's just going to get harder and harder with increased drought. And, you know, we might even have areas of food production. Our food bowls might change based mm-hmm. on the change in climactic patterns. So we then might have to adopt new Grains and plant species that can combat these, and this is where it comes into understanding where we're from and the agricultural wisdom of the place. So geographic specific solutions. So this is where we need to, you know, be speaking to our First Nations people about the most suitable crops that have been used here for a long time. And this is this applies everywhere as well, and not just trying to fit an agricultural model that we want mm-hmm. because of how we like to produce how we think it should fit it's about realizing what's appropriate for where we are as well yeah like you know, as
2: you were talking i was thinking about the fact i've spoken to farming families where half the family have sold up and moved to northern australia going the only future is in tropical farming they've taken the long view and gone if we're thinking about what is possible for our grandkids well we have no idea what will grow here once climate change wrecks the adelaide plains for cereal growing so quite simply, move to the place where it appears hotter and wetter, which just mean more tropical agriculture, and change gear if you want to be a farmer. So if you want to be a farmer, you've got to go where farming is doable, which is an indication that you know farmers can see this coming and can't find the answers they need. And in the case of indigenous crops, a lot of them from talking to a few indigenous people, you get a crop once a year, which historically was enjoyed, and then people moved on to the next bit of the area they ranged across to make use of the next resource. These things won't be able to be grown multiple times a year or in a huge paddock the way we do now. So it suits this diverse model. What native plants could we have all around our farm to get a little bit off of each crop over the year in conjunction with all the other things we're trying? People have to move to a very much a mixed farming model to take advantage of all these possibilities. So everything's got to be about people being more open-minded to doing more things at once and not putting all their eggs in one basket.
1: Even from the end consumer perspective, right, are we to then expect that we get capsicums all year round or or whatever? Well, no, we shouldn't, and
2: that's the point. Okay, some things we can grow in polytunnels. Actually, Roman, what about polytunnels? Can we legitimately, (laughs) as long as... In a sense, the soil is inside the poly tunnel as well, and we're very good at reclaiming and reusing and cleaning the water. Could we have a massive, sort of, you know, poly tunnel growth of, you know, Lebanese cucumbers, capsicums, tomatoes all year round as long as it was a closed system?
0: Yeah, this, yeah, this everything to do with whether it's, urban or more of the technology solutions to, you know, food production really excite me a lot. And I think it's easy to start being drawn into it because like, wow, this, you know, we could be having these massive factories in cities producing huge inputs of food in really small spaces, like vertical farming, where you have hydroponic systems rotating on a conveyor so that they all get equal distribution of light is super exciting. And I think that it's not out of the question, but, So, up in Port Augusta, I think is a really good example. Yeah, that massive tomato farm. So, that's Sundrop Farms. And I think that's a really good example of somewhere that is producing, you know, they've got a hydroponic system for growing tomatoes out in, you know, four or five hours' drive. So, northern, heading up north into South Australia where it gets warmer. But it's all of the lighting is powered through solar energy, renewable energy, which I believe they use a solar thermal method. So, they've got all the mirrors directing onto that big tower, which then. Heats liquid and Heats. then you get steam and you get a turbine or something, don't you? And that covers all... And they also desalinate water using the yeah. power through that. So I think cool. the inputs required to produce that amount are balanced out, whereas... So huge initial
2: capital cost, mm-hmm. but once it's up and running, hopefully pretty low maintenance
0: cost. Yes, and I think that until we can... Ensure that because if you're trying to eat tomatoes all year round, but then you're utilizing fossil fuels to make sure that you can be eating tomatoes in winter, then I don't know if the you know if that makes as much. Yeah, we sense. need the sun drop model of okay. The capital cost
2: is regained because we're selling the product, but the costs over time are going down because we're essentially in a closed system that's using renewable energy, you know, rebuilding its own soil by composting down all the remains of the tomato and cucumber plants or whatever. There's got to be a way to make the system as efficient as humanly possible,
0: yeah, and making yeah and more closed and more of a circular system yeah. you're right, so minimizing the amount of waste that we produce at every step, because at the moment food waste is a disgusting issue that we you know in Australia, it costs the economy around twenty billion dollars a year yeah. um, we waste about that's a ridiculous. third of all the food that we produce, so any f- all food that's produced in agricultural land in Australia, about a third of it gets thrown out. Around 30% of that happens at the household level. So that means that the average Australian throws out something like 300 kilos of food and it on average costs somewhere between $2,500 to $3,800. It's absolutely crazy. It's because crazy. Like Amelia was
2: saying something similar when she was on. And I just thought about it and paid attention to my wife and I the week after I thought either we're missing something or, or we must somehow become really conscious of this.
1: But it's uh, mm, uh, completely reified through the book I've just almost finished reading, <laughs> which is David Graeber's Debt: The First Five Thousand Years, which David's raised That's on the awesome podcast book. before. Yep. It's that. that our our the like our economy is basically it it identifies every human interaction as exchange almost. Yeah, and so all of all of that wasted food. Uh, no one's there to buy it because it's not necessarily up to a standard that someone might want to buy or you yeah. know, we're not going to just give it away to people who can't afford it because they, they can't afford the market. it. So our kind of society is not set up to just gift that away. It has to be worth something and then that in, 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 uh, in introduces a, a sort of standard that just allows it to be wasted. Just, I'm kind of projecting a little bit there. I assume that's how it works. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. The, a, lot,
0: a large amount, like part of the problem is even now, on a household level, there's become more infrastructure for us to. If you don't have the opportunity to compost at home, now we can, you know, there's yeah, at least put in green bin
2: to go away and be broken down yes. by the local council or whatever.
0: Yeah. And the fact that thirty percent of our house, our waste in our country comes at the household level means that everyone wow. should be trying to do that. Thirty percent. So even if we, and that's a significant example. That is a huge problem as far as consumer behavior goes that we really need to yeah, change yeah. and that's goes we need obviously policy but then we also need education about how big of an issue that is which is something that I particularly
1: want to try absolutely and address. it seems like well this is your project right and yeah. the thing I love about that is that so many of these climate things it becomes really difficult to feel like you're responsible for with your canvas yep. bag when people are setting off nuclear bombs underneath the ground and, you know, there are coal uh, uh, power plants, power plants, thank you. It, you know, it becomes really difficult to feel responsible for those kinds mm. of things. But when 30% of food waste is at the household yeah. level, that's entirely within your control. Yeah, we're back into sort of Dave Brailsford's marginal
2: gains argument. Mm-hmm. You know, get 100 small marginal gains and your overall gain will be huge. Mm-hmm. But you can't get one big overall gain. It's not possible. Mm. But you can keep doing the small things and piling them on top of each other, mm. which will have a transformative effect.
1: So clearly, it is difficult to burden everyone with knowing exactly where to buy from, who to buy from, what to buy, what time of year, all that kind of thing. So, in some sense, you're a curator of this kind of thing. So, yeah. I, I, I would, I'll take that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, well, we, you know, we effectively abrogate that responsibility to you yeah, in some sense. Again, so this <laughs> is this
2: thing of credibility. You We're know, mm. talking about news sources before we started the podcast today. And we were saying that you know we we look for credible news to reduce the amount of time we need to spend consuming it. Mm. And it's a bit the same with all these new new things we need to know. And and this was the point of having Amelia on and the point of having Roman on. There's people who can shortcut our learning
0: curve to get a marginal gain. And and that's a really good thing. Yeah, and that's, I think ideally that is the position that i would like to take on and i'm trying to is to how can i reach as many people as i can which is often a challenge and then when you're putting forward new information that you know people don't tend to like being told what to do so trying to put forward the why you should be thinking about it and like in the example of food waste just highlighting how big of an issue it is and For example, like for me, I like to think about how much – it goes beyond just our bins and what's going into the bin. It's Obviously, it's disgusting to just throw out half your food, but you then think about how far – if that food has travelled from Queensland and has passed into so many five different, six different hands on the way there, that has probably done more travelling than I have in the past six months. Precisely. Our food's gone infinitely further than any of us in the last year, basically. (laughs) And that's, you know, that represents a large amount of use of fossil fuels for travel. It's obviously immoral when around, you know, seven, 800 million people globally are suffering from hunger. It Mm. just seems wrong. If it's an animal product, it represents a waste of life as well. And to add to a waste of resources, it also, you know, producing plant product or animal products require a great deal more than it does to produce plant products because, it's more than just the edible part it's you know you've got a functioning being to support so then it's a whole range of calories it's some i think the good food institute ceo bruce was saying it's something you know like one calorie gain you know you requires nine calories for each calorie from chicken and 25 or something from beef as well so it's Wow, well, it it's Very loss, inefficient yeah. as to far ju- as producing food for us. Mm. To
2: jump into this, while I remember I was thinking about this before when you're talking that you know closed systems are good. Well, we got onto that. Okay, some countries make good use of eating bugs, eating insects. So Thailand, outside of the touristy bits, you know, getting sort of grasshoppers cooked in a batter and sauce is not an unusual thing. You know, are we going to be able to move people to things like that where the energy is much more efficient? Now, people might have a problem with this. Again, it's a living being. So if that one's not likely to grow, where are we at with kind of that grown meat? That seems to be on the verge of becoming a, a thing. That we take the cell culture and just grow the cell culture separate from ever being a sentient, you know, an aware being? are these going to be big things so we can still let people have their steak the difference will be it will be rectangular and have grown in a van
0: <laughs> so a large part of the argument is so the habitable earth that we have around 50 percent of it is used for agriculture and around 70 percent of that is used wow. for livestock yeah and then 17 so percent of the calories that we receive are from animal products and only 25 percent of the protein so if we're meet the nutritional requirements for everyone, say from a major part of animal products, we'd need to double the amount of land that we have dedicated towards it, which means using up all of the available habitable land for food production. And in the same regard, we also have destroyed 50% of the world's rainforests which Jimmy Halfcut is doing a great campaign on how you can res- you know pay $2.50 to restore one eight you know one square meter of agricultural land in the Amazon mm. and so this calls for a need to sustainably intensify our forms of food production because we can no longer start crossing that into that interface of where agricultural land meets rainforests or bushland mm. we need to just stop pushing out and mm. use what we have and maximize what we can produce from that and that's where a lot of cell-based or alternative proteins offer a great solution. And I think there's a few questions that still need to be answered as far as cell-based meat goes about where we're sourcing the you know components in of it. Will the maybe pieces. Yeah. yeah, will the will the nutritional sort of liquids be animal-derived? Will they be plant-derived? How will we come with that? And then, but, you know, in the last 15, 10 years or so since the first meat Cell-based meat patty was produced. It cost around $300,000 and now it's down to, you know, a hundred or something. Yeah, something get hugely significant and that will become widely available. Yeah. My understanding, my, I believe that, you know, in 10 years, 20 years, maybe we'll probably see like livestock, particularly beef be, become more of a luxury product because, as we begin to recognise...
1: Well, it has to be. Almost. It has to, yeah, it yeah. Has
2: to be. It, it's a case of, okay, it might be once a year for our birthday if we're a happy meat eater, that we go and have a steak that walked. Yeah. Mm. As opposed to a steak
0: that got grown in a tray with the nutrient dropped on the cell culture. Mm. And I think as we begin to experiment, once these cell-based meats become available, which will probably be soon, with innovation, it takes a little while for us yeah. to adopt them. But as 10%... Of, you know, the population begins to be like, oh, I'll try it once. And then suddenly it's like, oh, you don't even think about it. Yeah, and I really want the if-
2: first one available to try. To So, so again, we can talk about in the podcast and go, hey, peeps, it was yummy. Because that's how things like this are going to start. Yeah, Someone you know has to try and then tell
0: you about it. And, for instance, like Val Foods, I think they're based in New South Wales. They are using, <laughs> it's crazy, cells from... Variety of e- exotic animals, I think, to produce like you know oh. kangaroo patties or like oh. just messing around with I me. Mean, I guess you only need like one cell or yeah. two cells yeah. or something, and then um, emu burgers. Yeah, yeah. Emu cell-based emu burgers or alligator burgers. It's pretty wild, um, <laughs> but I think that and the they, novelty in that might actually be what helps it do well. That's interesting.
2: Yeah, like hey, tonight I'm having wombat stew. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No wombat was injured in the making of this stew.
0: That's a great advert. Very cool. What about that doesn't taste like dirt? <laughs> My preferred choice. But as far as a protein source that is if we can ensure that like we we're saying before, that the facilities required are powered by renewables. So then the cost of production on the environment is significantly reduced. And, you know, where we're sourcing the products, I think, you know, as technology advances, it's going to offer a really good solution to this problem because water costs will come down, land required, it means that we can then rewild a large part of the agricultural land that we used to use so that we can start planting trees sequestering more carbon and addressing that problem as well as you know feeding people and as long as we can make it so the healthy alternatives that you know they're not doing any damage and it's that highlights the need for more stricter you know food safety regulations and all but i think that'll come as as it progresses and insects as well that's not something i'm trying to explore a little bit more i I'm open to that. Look, once
2: (laughs) again, I would like to be given a really good meal cooked by a really good Thai chef who grew up in a village where it was normal. So it's not someone experimenting with it. It's someone who knows the best recipe. Yeah. if I don't like that, well, okay, it's a bit of a problem. But I know until I have that meal that could be really tasty. How am I going to know? So, yeah, you read about these things and you go, well, okay, was it necessity in bits of Thailand where life is hard? Yeah, but they've taken it from necessity to it's yummy. And that seems to be the trick with all these things. So, you know, as we were talking about sustainability, I was sort of thinking, like my favourite, uh, you know, protein powder for when I finish my yoga practice and after bending and twisting that much, the idea of a proper meal is profoundly unappealing. So more often than not, I'll end up, you know, grabbing sort of Botanica blends or Amazonia protein powder and just having a shake. And the main protein powders in them come from, was it golden pea and brown rice protein? Yep. And you think, but both of those are mega amounts of acreage. Mm. Now maybe that's sustainable, but if we need more plant protein, how many acres have we got? What other ways? You know, could we grow crops like that vertically? Or I know the French are starting to play with literally, you know, growing microorganisms in a factory setting. So a closed system to grow, you know, heaps of little teeny tiny algae type plants. Where at the end you just dry them and compress them, and you've got kind of plant protein and all these other good things, literally from just light and water in a In a factory so again a closed system that doesn't use up any more land is it the most appealing idea of food you know maybe not but if it filled if it fulfilled that protein role or that nutritional role in a closed system that can be done in a warehouse meaning that a few more acres or hectares can be rehabilitated if they can show that by moving to this factory system of something odd or this closed system with something odd that we can rehabilitate the natural, that's pretty persuasive as a, a combined set of imagery
0: on that as well. and I think a large part of you know we've had issues where we've tried to draw people away from one maybe it be fossil fuels, but they're not offer a solution for the people involved. And if we're saying that we're going to remove your main source of income, we also like as the, our government bodies need to then present, we are going to transition slowly you. yeah transition you away yeah. from a livestock producer. To then, you know, pay you to revegetate your property, so and you know, as for a carbon store, so start carbon farming yep. and as a solution, the, and have you know, give you investments or something on the alternative source of protein production that will. Yeah. And we'll
2: re-flowers. have that regional protein <laughs> production where you know one member of the family still goes to the big warehouse every day and works in the, the protein warehouse. Mm-hmm. So it, it's about putting these things where the communities that still wants to be on the land, they'll just be on the land in a different way. It's like constantly here in Australia when we talk about renewable energy. Yeah, we're going to go there. But we need to make sure that every coal miner in Australia knows what their job is that they're transitioning to. Whether there'll be someone who in the end will help build and install wind turbines, or build and install solar equipment, or build and install solar thermal, or whether they will requalify to work in a brand new smelter that runs off solar thermal. You can't just say to people you're taking their world away. You have to say that, is going to mess us up this won't and here's how we're going to transition you to succeeding in the new you know, so the sheer short-sightedness at the moment of we can see the end point but the really clever thing is to build the transition
1: but what about transitioning into battery production well, the lithium uh, again, mines?
2: <laughs> again that too is another thing You know, again we don't have a lot of lithium but we could still be building them here but we have a lot of rare earth elements. Mm. Surely there's a cleaner way to process them and once again contribute to the efficiency of better energy sources. You know, so if we're going to say, okay, let's go have this you know, big warehouse in which we're going to grow a protein of some description. Well, where are all the solar panels that's going to cover the whole roof and run the whole warehouse coming from? How much can we contribute to making that work affordably and transitioning people going, see, your mining job might be gone. But look at how many of these things we're going to build and you're Mm -hmm. going to be the installers of the solar panels and do all the maintenance on all these roofs. If people can see that you're giving them a choice to do well, I think people are more flexible than we give them credit for.
0: I think as well as exciting as the alternative protein spaces and, you know, urban or more indoor farming, more so than urban farming, urban Mm. farming, I think when it, you know, is something else. Land value is too high. The warehouse could still well be in the middle of nowhere. Exactly. yeah, And in, you know, that's where sort of climate proof came from is, you know, yeah. being able to ensure that we have sources of food production, regardless on whatever disasters we might face. Yep. I, I sit on the side where technology excites me, but I also think we need to avoid that last minute approach, mm-hmm. whether it be like climate change. And instead of saying, oh, let's just wait till our geoengineering solutions are available, it's like, why don't we use the tools that we have now? Get ahead now, start getting the marginal gains. And shifting to more sustainable consumption, which is the second action track and priority of the United Nations Food Systems Summit that will be convened next year. Where's that going to be? So that's still more or less up in the air based on the COVID COVID, situation. But this is a Food Systems Summit convened by the Secretary General highlighting the need for food systems transformation in order to achieve the 17 interconnected sustainable development goals.
1: Are you attending this? Do I see that?
0: So I am the United Nations major group for children and youth, regional youth focal point for okay, Australia okay. and the Pacific islands in support of this summit. So I'll be helping facilitate a number of these food systems dialogues across the country. So talking cool. to different actors involved in our food systems and helping them do what we're currently doing right now is raising awareness about how important food is to our our future. Mm. And the second action track, which is, so there's five of them. And these areas of major focus is shifting towards sustainable consumption, which is mainly to do with reducing our food waste and avoiding resource intensive and resource intensive and high impact foods. Mm. So although these technologies are exciting, one of the best things we can do as individuals right now is by adopting small practices and steps that reduce our consumption, reduce our footprint. And mm. we recognize the impact that animal agriculture can have. So then we can still have it, but I think just a little bit less. Mm. And as we were talking about before, if, you know, 20 years down the track we have it once a year, means we can still have it, but we just need to give it the respect it deserves and maybe only have a small portion of it throughout the week if we do mm. still want to con- keep consuming it and then really focus on reducing our food waste, um, the eat, um, eat, eat forum, eat Lancet. They released a report last year that really highlighted, you know, ensuring that we can have a health, so healthy and sustainable diet produced in a way that, you know, we're not pushing, you know, the planet over this tipping point, and then, um, yeah, that we can also meet everyone's dietary requirements as well. when yeah,
2: because one of the ironies that the minute humans settled, what uh, anthropologists and archaeologists have worked out is birth rate doubles. Humans on the move have a kid about every four years. Stationary humans have a kid every two.
0: Mm.
2: And once you're into agriculture, you know that you need those little buggers because agriculture is so labor intensive. And if you can't afford the half million dollar piece of equipment for a monoculture, what you actually need is more hands for diverse agriculture.
1: Mm.
2: So part of this whole thing is population is always the kind of ugly elephant in the room.
1: And how many young people are running away from rural communities? Yep, all over
2: the developed world they run like hell and all over the developing world they run like hell. So this thing of wasting less food is really important because less and less people want to be involved in food production because you might eat and survive but you can't get beyond that subsistence level thing if that's what you spend your days and weeks and months and years doing. Agriculture's an amazing lifestyle choice for the few people that love it and want it, but for most people it's the drudgery of repetition. And historically that's largely what agriculture has been, the drudgery of repetition. And yet we've got to sort the population issue that if we're going to have the mega population, the efficiency, and the first efficiency is waste less food. Mm. The second efficiency is waste less resources. The third efficiency is don't break the environment when you're doing these first two things and just keep finding more and more ways to get more efficiencies in whatever categories we want to add to this list. So this is to me why the technological things, the small things are great, happy to do them, but the technological thing is the thing that acknowledges that for most humans, agriculture is drudgery. You know, Home garden, the joy of that for the peace of mind, it's more of a peace of mind thing than it is a groom own food. Mm. The food you end up with at the end is psychologically beneficial almost more than it is you know, biologically beneficial. And there's... No easy
0: solution, like we're saying, and depending Mm. where you are, like... Very um, different answers depending on what space you're in. As far as being here in Australia and shifting towards sustainable consumption, it means reducing our intake of ultra-processed foods, Mm. refined grains, refined sugars, Mm. transitioning to lower sources of animal-sourced foods, reducing our food waste. Elsewhere, animals offer a solution to an incomplete diet, and we need to recognise that. And, you know, in Australia, we... According to the Ecological Footprint Network, our footprint on the environment is four times greater than the globally available fair share. So that means that we are chewing up way more resources based on our individual lifestyle than a large part of the other world, Mm. others across the globe. And a really easy way to reduce that is through our diet. And, you know, obviously driving less and throwing away less food, just avoiding buying new clothes all the time. But the solutions are different. And so here we live a very lucky and beautiful Mm. lifestyle that we should all be really grateful for but the solutions aren't going to be the same everywhere else but we do need to provide our farmers with the technology to then adjust their practices to better the environment but we also need to ensure that they're being supported to do that like we're saying before as well and that comes down to where you're buying from by shopping at a farmer's market or something you're ensuring that maybe instead of 10 percent to the dollar that they might receive from Woolworths or Coles or any of the other big supermarkets, they might get 40 cents. And so where
2: possible, buy as directly as you can. Mm. So something like, you know, again, I don't know what's happened since Jeff Bezos bought Whole Foods Markets, but under the original owner, John Mackey, all over America, they tried to source as many vegetables as possible locally and they actually had a, a tag system for if this is less than 50 miles from the store or more. And tried to have as many vegetables that were as less as 50 miles as possible. Whatever the number was, it was like an hour in the car or truck was their kind of point. And I thought, what a great thing to do. It's not perfect, but it's that beginning of at least giving people the choice. If there's two things here and one is marginally dear, but it's the local one, well, at least you've solved one, again, marginal gain. A bit less waste of resources to get it to me. And a bit more local employment. Something you may not know anything about Roman, but again, I've run into it a few times on YouTube is Tim Flannery, who used to run the South Australian Museum, is really pushing big seaweed farms out at sea, both for carbon capture and um, you know for another source of you know healthy thing in our diet, and potentially combining you know aquaculture with the seaweed farms, because again, where the fish crap, the seaweed cleans up the water, so you don't end up polluting the ocean, you grow more seaweed, they're capturing more carbon. Um where does aquaculture generally fit in the potential solution for feeding this many people?
0: Not something that I'm particularly as a, you know well versed in, but okay. my understanding is, you know, uh, the fisheries and seafood play a major part in the global economy as yeah. especially, you know, us here in Australia as well, and seafood offers for many countries, you know, a primary source of nutrients and sustenance and that I think will continue to have a role. And as far as what I see, you know, talking about that Eat Lancet or what constitutes a diet that's both healthy for ourselves and the planet, I think seafood will play a role in that. Again, not in excess, but currently, we are destroying the oceans through trawlers <laughs> yeah. and overfishing, and not to mention having irresponsible use of fertilizers and pesticides on our terrestrial agricultural systems, leading yeah, to washing into reefs, runoffs, and, and we yeah. now we just have these enormous dead zones around the world, which has destroyed marine ecosystems, and yeah. the you know the the role that the ocean plays in just so many aspects of life and touching on, you know, the ecosystem functions. I, that's not my specialty, but I believe that it's an important thing that um, we should be taking care of.
2: So once again, we probably need new things to be as often as possible, as close to a closed system as possible. Mm. Don't do harm and don't need need extra things put in very often.
0: Mm, and that seems to be the model all around, doesn't it? To then rehabilitate the bit you're not wrecking. And exactly what you said, it's not just about doing no harm, but more now. We've done lots of harm, so now we can't continue just to do no harm. We yeah. need to do that a little bit step further, whether it's adding seaweed into our aquaculture systems to then store carbon and clean the water as well. Yeah. So it's doing as much as we can yeah, it almost to needs clean to be up what we've already
2: done. improve yeah. needs to be the model. And that's a, that should surely be a more saleable model to people. Our world's going to be different, but you're going to eat reasonably well and the world will be better
1: for it. So, uh, all of that is quite motivating, I'm sure, for listeners out there who are moved by a lot of what we've talked about. I find it hard to be find it hard to believe that anyone would listen to this and then feel as if they don't have to do anything. So, well, they can stop eating, but that will end poorly. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I guess just as a. a a small kind of quick fire round, let's say, uh, can I, can I shoot some questions Absolutely. off to you? Yeah. So as something as kind of every day as picking places to, to sit down to eat or to even get takeaway or something like that, what kind of, can, what kind of questions should you ask of a restaurant? Let's say not, not necessarily that you have to ask the restaurant, but, you but what do should, your research yeah. before
2: you went, what what should we try and know?
0: Well, that's a hard one as well, because okay whether let's look at food waste Mm. whether they recycle or have a system in place to compost is not it's their responsibility but also there's the infrastructure is not there to to support small business and that is a big problem that amelia has been looking at as well like even across the across the state across the country we still really need to improve the availability of restaurants and our retailers to deal with food waste And there needs to be an incentive to do that because it is more work. And you know, when we've got these small little alleyways and there's no services to deal with green bins or it's not going anywhere, that is a major problem. That that's that's a hard one. Um, for me, you know, I eat plant based, and you know, still think we should still support places that aren't strictly plant based Mm -hmm. because you know it's small business. We love our small businesses, and as things change, people are. Maybe whether they're up to date in particular information,s or information, and that, you know they might be a bit slower to adopt adopt new practices or something. But we can still support them. We just shouldn't completely push them out of out of the retail environment, but just because they don't have any vegan options. Yeah, again, um, if you push people, you get fo- you get pushed back. So I mm-hmm. think yeah, we should support the transition because it's a caring environment. So. <laughs> mm. But yeah, I, if you can look at where they source their foods, if they have, um, you know, more low-impact foods or plant-based options, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that would be the main ones for me. But
2: again, there's no ticker <laughs> box form they can put on their website yet that says how much of our food is local and put in a real number. Uh, all our waste from our kitchen goes to this composting service. Even if those two simple things could be put up, a number for how much is under 100 kilometers from the restaurant, and where's the food waste go? Even those two things,
0: if it could just be on every website, mm. two little boxes, mm. that would be really helpful. I think, yeah, if a few of those things, doesn't have to be all of them, but minimising their food waste, season, lo- sourcing yeah, seasonality. So it could be another sh- box, couldn't it? So mm. it means that if they're... Someone that changes their menu. Yep. Yeah, mm. changing the menu, it, it keeps it interesting. It means that they're probably, if it's seasonal and local, it means that it's not travelling far away or it's not being produced in in a, some somewhere at the wrong time and it's yeah. probably using greenhouses which aren't always inherently bad as well again we could have another tick for that if it's coming out of polytunnel
2: well is a nice closed system you know that is wasting very little and how's the energy coming to it yeah so some of these things could be who are we buying stuff from could also be up so if you know it's coming from what was it Sundrop farm for example you could go right A lot of capital was invested to make sure this is pretty much a closed system.
1: That's a plus-sum game because then the consumer is pleased that they're getting something from Sun Drop Farm and then Sun Drop Farm is also getting some kind of advertisement.
2: For doing the hard yards in the first place and
1: putting all this investment in. Yeah. Yeah, so... I mean that's a good way to go about it uh, another thing so compost implemented in houses what what would you what would be some kind of top tips i suppose not everyone has the space to compost or
0: have a worm farm i think but now you can ask your local council just to get a bench top small bin yep. and you can get these green bags which are biodegradable yep. you just put it on your bench doesn't smell yep. you know empty it every four days chuck it in your green bin and that gets sent off to then be broken down. That is super simple. Everyone can do it. It's non-invasive. It h- helps you visualize how yep. much food you're throwing it's out. It's the easiest and then, marginal gain. Mm. You know, absolutely. in North Adelaide where Karen
2: and I put out two of those bags a week from you know, all the cutoffs from when we make big salads most days for lunch and goes in the green bin and every Monday that goes away and gets composted. So when the compost goes back onto the roses all around North Adelaide, you know where that compost
0: came from. It's all our green waste awesome kylie um, from our food systems in brisbane also introduced me to a website called share waste which has local individuals around you know in your area that have a facility to compost so it might be because they have animals so you can can sort of of drop off yeah it's like a, a b2b but for composting on a household level so you can drop off your compost they'll manage it May even potentially get some, you know, mulch compost in return for your garden a couple of months down the track. Nifty. So, yeah, that's also a good option. Um, but uh, yeah, that would be just get a get a bench top green bin and easily. Guys, if you're thinking about worm
2: farms, we've had the experience of trying to have that in a balcony in North Adelaide, and this terrible day normally happens in mid-December with the first 35 degree day. We get the worm apocalypse. <laughs> it's very sad. So, so the worm thing only works six months a year and then we free the worms into the the small garden at the bottom of our apartment building which means it's the healthiest little freaking garden in the world because it's got multiple years of huge piles of worms going wild
0: it's <laughs> a closed system you
1: know keeping it yeah so we we, you know, we we make sure we they all go in the garden before the worm apocalypse <laughs> I guess and finally when people are making those decisions at the supermarket what what kind of questions should they be asking when they've gone through the even even not only the fresh produce aisles but even some of the other aisles as well. So I think for shopping a ideally a great diet would
0: be a whole food plant-forward plant-based diet where mm-hmm. you a lot of your new protein is coming from legumes and grains and soy products like tofu and people will take time to transition to these sorts of diets as well. So I still believe that, you know, we can enjoy some of those discretionary foods like chocolate. And obviously I still, everyone loves that. Or, you know, even ultra processed plant-based meat patties, Mm. for example. Mm. But minimizing the amount of ultra processed foods and, you know, clear distinction, a lot of food has long been processed. And I think like olive oil, cheeses, Mm. Yeah, are technically Spice processed technically mm-hmm. processed but it's minimal but relatively to a pop tart yeah. <laughs> whereas ultra processed yeah. is more about those foods that are typically produced from those three major grain you know three major mm. crops corn maize soy mm. they have been produced in a way that then they can completely separate every component of it mm. and then re you know, Const- it's more like chemistry and than it is. Yeah, cookie. it's mad, yeah. mad, and which you know, it's they're delicious, but we no, should be minimizing it not be, delicious, <laughs> <very awful>. <laughs> <laughs> because typically they might come from much larger scale production, mm-hmm. which may you know not they may not always be in the most sustainable or regenerative practices. Yeah. they also typically don't represent something that is either required, necessary, or beneficial for ourselves. So minimizing that sourcing locally seasonally where you can you know going for whole grains more so so brown breads and brown rices over your white white rices they contain more of the beginning nutrients that's not my background but that's these are some of the things that i've mm. sort of gathered hey we're good humans when we eat burritos we have
2: the black rice not only is it yummy that cheese does something positive for you as opposed to nothing yeah, and for and you.
1: not grown here which is always which is a big thing in water yeah. management so yeah
0: yeah so either fair trade if you can yeah again um, fair trade as- ain't perfect but it's a
2: good start mm.
0: yeah and it's, it's, a, yeah, it's not per- and that's the thing there's a lot of still a long way to go fair trade's not perfect but at least you have an, a, mm. a better idea and a bit clearer that this is benefiting everyone involved so yeah. when you want your chocolate buy green and black because it's mainstream but at least it's fair trade exactly mm. and Australian made where you can as well um, things that aren't air freighted like fresh food that's not air freighted over Mm. You know, we've just seen that we're beginning to import American apples, which just might lose. be somehow, you know, whether who's getting the economic benefit. But we that means that if right. it's if that Saudi is at a Europa lower price, as we were discussing order. before with, yeah. you know, helping other countries, if those apples are sold at a slightly lower price than our our local produced apples, then there's a major, you know, all our local farmers suddenly miss out on yeah. the opportunities of, and they have great fresh fruit yeah, and that's ridiculous. flying fresh food over, is it, that's a lot of emissions as well. And whether those are mm. being
2: yeah. you know, counterbalanced in some meaningful yeah. way.
1: Well, I think those are some good tips to start with. And I'm sure that the listeners are probably wanting more. And of course that is something that you provide. So uh, could you give our listeners just um, a bit of a rundown of where they can hear more from you and get more of this lovely information? Sure. So to summarize those last few points, just minimise
0: food waste, get a benchtop um, green bin, start looking at trying to incorporate a few more plant-based meals into your week. If you can, get out, have a chat with some of your local farmers at your farmers markets, get to know the ways that they're producing, try and yeah, source local and seasonal where you can. So you can find a lot of the information and some of my blog posts at my uh, business website platform at climateprooffood.com. I've also released the first episode of the climate proof food podcast on Spotify and pending on Apple music. I think I've just got that thumbs up email. Um, and if you'd like to hear more or get involved in the United Nations food Systems summit, please reach out to me at climate proof food as well. Um, I will put that, hopefully put that in the show notes.
1: Mm. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This has been great. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Roman. I feel both empowered and threatened. Actually, I, I enjoyed it and I'm hungry.
0: But that's because it's lunchtime. I'm always hungry at lunchtime. I think this, it can often be overwhelming and that the, the point that I'm trying to bring is that we need to do what we can and we don't need to go the full, do everything, but just Marginal help. gains. And it can, uh, marginal gains and, and recognising mm-hmm. the huge impact that our s- small food choices and these often we see them as insignificant actions ha, do have a great impact and that can also be empowering and understanding that we're having a difference especially when people do feel a little bit lost and overwhelmed with the issues that we're faced with but so recognizing that buying this instead of you know that actually has a big impact so i think there's benefits on a number of you know mentally mm. environmentally and you know, towards our health as well
1: lovely well thank you roman welcome thanks so much and thank you david
2: Thank you, gentlemen, and have a great day, listeners. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OZCast Network. Peace out.